Dirt, a Go Loud original. Hello, and welcome to Dirt with Dermot and Paul. This evening, we're down in the fire pit area at Dermot's Garden. It's a little bit chilly and we're just about to get the fire going here. Need a jumper on? Yeah, we, you do, and I've made a bit of a mistake in this area. We planted it up on a television series last year and I put some Dixonias around it. And, uh, you yeah, they seem to be doing fine here, but I just worry about the smoke when we do light it. So I haven't used the area as much as possible, and I'm either going to move the Dixonias or move the fire pit. You're a bit obsessed with Dixonias, which is the tree fern. I uh, love <laughs> the Tasmanian tree fern. I love the fact that, well, they're trees, aren't they? It's jungle feel all year round. Um, they're just ancient, evocative, and deeply green, and I like being surrounded by green. Can't argue with that. This week, we are going to delve into a few different things. Uh, the first one. Well, we're going to talk about gardening equality for everybody and why we we only see people who look like me and Paul, <laughs> that's not so good, reflected uh, on gardening television programmes and books and magazines. I know that's changing a little bit. I wonder, is it changing in Ireland? Is there racism in gardening? Let's explore that a little bit through personal experience. And we're also going to talk a bit about how this year has just been so mad. There's nothing left. The garden centres are sold out. Our producer couldn't even find a tree. I uh, know. We sent uh, Aideen on a task looking for, well, not one, not two. We gave her a choice of ten trees <laughs> to find and she couldn't find the ones she wanted. But things are sold out. The garden centres and nurseries are so busy. And anybody who produces anything for the gardening business, garden furniture, fire pits, Dixonias, whatever it is, they're all gone. And we're also going to go, where, Vietnam? Yeah, we're going to go across the world to, I'm going to bring you on a bit of a journey, a trip I did a couple of years back to Vietnam, going plant hunting, looking for plants in the wild, in their native habitat, in the jungles of North Vietnam, and it was really exciting. I can't wait for that. So let's get on with the podcast. Brilliant. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. Did you know I was born in London? Only recently I've learned that. But yeah, like lots of Irish people, my parents moved to London in 1959 and they lived there for five years. My brother was born a couple of years before me. When I was born a week later, we moved home. But when they went over, it was a different time. It was a challenging time. It was a very challenging time to be Irish in London. It was the time of no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. This seems amazing. And it's only 1959. That long ago. Not that long ago. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And my first, I wasn't aware of it, but I was there. I was in my mum's tummy. She was seven months pregnant with me. And she was on a tube with my little brother. And she was talking to my little brother, who would have been one or two at that stage. And a woman spat on her for being Irish on the tube. So I've always been aware of being treated differently and inequality in every areas of life. And inequality manifests in different ways because I also remember when I was eight or nine walking past Trinity College with my mum and asking what was that and she said to me, that's not for the likes of you or me. Wow. Know your place. And I was kind of brought up with this idea of know your place. And 
it never sat well with me because I don't know my place. And my place is as good as anybody else's place. I've always felt. And, but have you felt prejudice towards you, you know, since moving back to London? Or was that gone by the time you arrived back in London? It and, uh, was by and large gone. When I went to London to start work, yeah, there was a little bit of... of, of There's the messing and the slagging and the, the you paddy. know, the paddy and... And all that. And then as I began to achieve, there was that in a more... I knew what the aggro was about and it was never explicit, but it was me being different and me being a bit of a paddy and coming over here and... But there was lots of Irish people that did do very well over there too. So that had changed things, I suppose, because they had seen, you know, Terry Wogan and all those type of Irish people that came across and made their name in the UK. So that had changed stuff. And London is was a brilliant city to me. And London is a city that's my second home. And London is a place that I absolutely love. And London is a place that gave me opportunity. But it doesn't give everybody opportunity. And my industry doesn't give everybody opportunity. Our industry sidelines people and it sidelines people not actively just making them invisible so gardening is no exception to discrimination it just because gardening is for everyone doesn't mean that there is still discrimination or there isn't discrimination in gardening i would be more strident about okay. that i think not only is there discrimination there but gardening, as you and I know, is incredibly democratic. It's all about passion and skill. And if you have people who, as we all do in every nation on earth, we garden, we grow food because we have to. It's, a, it's, our, it's an instinct, isn't it? To Basically, to live, you have to be able to grow food. And that's the very, very, you know, going back to the root of how we are here now. People had to garden, people had to farm, people had to be at one with the land and understand how to grow to live. And as gardeners in this part of the world we use resources that have mainly come to us from other countries entirely you could argue and we've colonised places now maybe you could argue that we as Irish people have been colonised and aren't the colonisers but in general wealthy nations have gone out and taken back to their places and made their places their home countries very wealthy or certain classes in their home countries, very lovely. So gardening has become quite aristocratic. Yeah, um, it's for the upper class, it's for the elite. Um, not entirely, but there is a huge element of gardening is for the people who could afford it, who could afford to send out people to find their plants and to show off. It was another way of showing off, wasn't it? Gardening was just another way to flash your wealth, to say, I'm more powerful than the next because I can do this, that and what have you. So I find myself living in London. I do a garden in 1996 at the Chelsea Flower Show and overnight I become somebody. I become a thing. I become a person. I have value. I have worth. And I travel right the way around Britain. And Britain is multicultural. Many parts of Britain are, you, you will find people have, whose families have originated in many different parts of the world all over the country and in many, many places living in great harmony and it being successful. Then every year I go to the Royal Horticultural Society show, the Chelsea Flower Show, and it is predominantly white. And male, but mainly white. You know, it's that kind of, it's the white males with the tweed jacket sort of brigade, you could say. 
that are predominantly in the judges' seats or predominantly even showing. And the people who are there, you know, the vast majority, probably 70% of them are white British men. Or That is quite true. I, I think that's a sweeping statement, but it's... It, it, it is quite true because actually female gardeners at Chelsea have had a hard time of it and are beginning... To but they're only prominent. starting to claw their way. You know, into you, the, what, what you're saying yeah. is is quite right. I know the head of the top of the RHS is uh, presently uh, a woman, but I think what you're saying is I'm sure she's probably the first woman. Yeah, my, my, yeah. Dude, my first show manager was also a woman, Mavis Sweeting, and she was a powerhouse. She was uh, like a Miss Thatcher for Chelsea. Uh, quite incredible. Wow. <laughs> but my eyes were open to how white the event was and the lack of diversity in terms of people showing you'd always have people coming from the Caribbean with great displays from the Bahamas or, or whatever there's always people from South Africa coming across there's always, always there's a kind of a couple yes, creating yeah. Yeah, a magnificent displays but in general the people creating gardens creating display, the displays and people who were attending were white and in general middle class mm-hmm. or higher than middle class and you experienced that firsthand, not experienced it firsthand, but you saw... You know, I've had funny uh, times, I've had f- funny situations with my... But because they've been the exception to the rule, and the rule is that I have been welcomed and promoted like I wasn't at home, and given a chance like I wasn't at home, I've always regarded the exception to the rule as an exception to the rule. So there was that woman who saw my first garden at Chelsea in 1995, and said, oh, it's an Irish garden, I'll have nothing to do with that, and walked away. But she was by far an exception to that rule. What happened more recently was, I felt much more worrying. My last garden at the Chelsea Flower Show coincided with a time when the first black garden designer created a garden and won a gold medal And this Chelsea. was only in 2016, which is even more incredible when you think about it. And that was, she was also a woman. Yeah. Which was a double. Her uh, name was Juliet Sargent. And her appearance there was celebrated. And she created the modern slavery garden, commemorating the passing of the modern slavery act. Commemorating the passing of the modern slavery act. And she gave a quote to newspapers which went like this. I don't come across any other black garden designers when I'm out and about, but that doesn't mean black people aren't interested in gardening and design. I think I think they do not culturally feel part of the horticultural scene. And you were asked for comment on this. Were you she, went, she went on to say that, and you need confidence, a network of contacts and a sponsor to pull off something like a Chelsea show garden. She told that to a magazine called Horticulture My Week. The question in my mind is whether that is being represented and whether we encourage young people of all cultures and ethnicities to come into gardening and design. I suspect not. So a couple of things happened after that. Alan Titchmarch hit back saying, gardening is not the preserve of any, which I think is quite right, and dubbed this is where it gets a bit problematic for me and dub Sargent's comments unhelpful why were those comments unhelpful? but they were just painting it out what Saying it was it as it is very much so yeah. yeah so this article goes on to say and again this is from 2016 remember Dermot Garden who was designing a garden at Chelsea said 
that Sergeant was right. I'm absolutely thrilled that Juliet has spoken out. I've always got into trouble for saying that the RHS is too white, and it's wonderful that Chelsea at last has its first black show garden designer. I hope I get to meet her. Is that okay? Yeah. So after that, there's a quote from the RHS Chelsea Flower Show Selection Panel Chairman. Listen to this. The Royal Horticultural Society Chelsea Flower Show Selection Panel Chairman. And this was his reaction. It's sad that Gavin and Sargent should use this cheap tactic to fuel their own show publicity, especially as I've not seen them do anything themselves to change the situation. But uh, maybe these publicity-hungry designers might do best to encourage a wider diversity at Chelsea by supporting them in the future. But she did by going and doing it herself. It's like, gaslighting. Yeah. It's, it's blaming people who are raising the issue, as I have always done since my creating my first garden at Chelsea, as I have always done. I have always said the RHS and the Chelsea Flower Show are hideously what? And then blaming us for it. I, I did seek clarification. So this appeared in every newspaper at the time, certainly in the Evening Standard, in the Telegraph, uh, in, uh, in magazines. And because it was 2016, it just floated away and people didn't care much. But had that happened in 2020 it would have rocked the whole thing. I think these comments would have would be problematic now. I think they really would be problematic now. Because the last year has opened the whole world's eyes to racism in a way that it hasn't before. And it's not that people haven't been aware of it forever, but it's just all of a sudden there's action been taken. There's, you know, people have been held accountable. There's organisations are doing, beginning to do what they need to do. But it's taken the murder of an innocent black man and lots of other innocent people to do that and it seems to have built a momentum that's not stopping and horticulture is as guilty as any other industry for that and that RHS and everything is as guilty as anyone else. So our eyes are being opened to what's happening our eyes are being prized open to inequality, black people Asian people if you're different in any way people can feel threatened and I think is the gardening industry threatened by what's happening the fact that people are saying it should open up is the gardening industry really threatened by a black garden designer who says that she doesn't see herself reflected in what's happening within these organisations or at these shows and from my point of view if I say something the Chelsea Flower Show selection panel chairman the effect of his words was to shut me up and to blame me for looking for do you know what I don't need to say much at Chelsea to get publicity I generally like to talk about gardens and the state of gardening and plants and whatever and why I come to Chelsea and whatever but should I have answered a journalist in a disingenuous I didn't bring up the topic it was just put to you and your comment was, you know, thank God it's finally out in the open, basically. And that people have, you know, at last, after a hundred, that was 103 years of Chelsea, there was a black, you know, designer there, which is madness when you think about it. And then 
she becomes the problem and I become the problem. And she becomes victimised. People feel excluded. They feel these associations with their historical links and their links to society and the upper echelons of society, whether it's the royal family, down, don't include them. Don't reflect them and don't include them. They don't feel welcomed. They don't feel that they have a place there. There's a problem here because no one's acknowledging there's a problem. Well, this year they've had to, and they have. They've put in, you know, directors of... Uh, what is, what's the... But they've had to. It's Yeah, they were forced to do it because of the, you know, events of the last year. So okay. they now have a... It's like a director of equality or, a, you know, someone who's in charge of equality in the society to try and, you know, make it more diverse and what have you. Um, and there's a policy and there's a whole, you know, document in place to show what their values are and that it reflects that. Yeah. That has been put in, but only in the last year. This isn't an easy conversation, is it? should be. But it's not. It should. Do you know why it's not? Because people yeah. aren't interested. Yeah. And people think gardening is a lovely pastime and gardening is what I do to get away from the news and to get away from issues. Gardening is my escape. Gardening is where I create my own world. But I do know that when we started talking about this on our Instagram lives around the time of George Floyd's murder, some people were very vocal about saying go, 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 yes, we want to hear about that. Other people expressed, you know, on what the right wing or whatever expressed deleted me, unfollowed or, or whatever, all of which is fine. But I think a lot of the audience don't care. And funnily enough, I think a lot of your generation really are more interested in the soil and plants and not the issues around it. Because yeah. it's not there, it's not at the top of your agenda, and it's not at the top, really, of your mate's agenda. I guess not. Um, Why not? But I also guess that our generation is that one, well, you hope, that is more accepting, that it becomes less of an issue. But that it doesn't mean that it isn't less of an issue at the moment. Be more accepting is a passive thing. I don't think you no. can be passive about this anymore. And it, you know, a lot of things annoy me, but it annoys me <laughs> oh, I do. when we just think of gardening as this sedate pastime there for our pleasure. If things aren't equal, and if there isn't equal opportunity, we should all be shouting about it. And it's as important. So sometimes with these environmentalists, yes, save the forest. Yes, save conserve the peach yes think about how we use our resources but actually as a race of creatures people are up there and if we can't value each other and make it inclusive and actively encourage by talking just doing having this conversation by having these conversations by looking in our own backyards i.e. where we live you know I can think of as I was growing up one gardener in Ireland who wasn't who didn't look like us that was a clematis specialist called Dr Mary Toomey and I have a feeling that within the great and the good because she was a member of all those societies maybe this is wrong and maybe I'm speaking out of turn but I just always had a feeling that she was other or she was treated as other 
even though she had this high regard and people, you know, respected her, still didn't make a it. A brilliant communicator, brilliant enthusiast, um, great information to share, brilliant grower, and yet what people first saw was where... It's just my interpretation. to be very interesting to talk to her, but my interpretation is she was seen as somebody different. And unless, as you say, we have the conversation, unless people of colour are from different backgrounds are different social and economic backgrounds yeah. are reflected in the media in the shows in writing unless we open the doors in terms of education and in terms of just being seen or given a voice like is beginning to happen with people in the artistic community, in the fashion community, in the modelling community, in the entertainment community, in the broadcasting community. The gardening community is one of the biggest of them all. Well, it's just not quite there yet. It needs a kick to get it. Well, it's, 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 it's bigger than that. It's not that. It's not quite there. I've never, in the Irish context, I've never heard this discussion been had. In the bigger context, across the water in England, I see actively platitudes been made, but very little in terms of real change. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. So I got this email during the week and it went, how yaz, H-O-W-A-Y-A-Z, what does that mean? It's slang for yes. Where's it come from? Anyway, the email went on. I chose a tree, managed to get to the nursery, and they'd sold out. I chose a second tree, and they were sold out of that too. But I shall persevere. It's me! (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean you you couldn't get... Art, the trees we we sent you on this task of finding, we both gave, picked our top five trees... For your garden. For anybody's garden. But yes, it was for me to actually go and do something. Yeah, for small to medium-sized garden. And we gave you a task of going and getting one of those trees. Well, you asked me to pick a tree and I couldn't because I was bamboozled by all these words that sounded like you were blowing your nose. Um, So I had to go home and listen back to what she said. (laughs) What did we say? (laughs) They're all Latin names and stuff. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. Well, I chose an acacia for you and I really wanted you to get an acacia. Yes, but Paul said it would grow like the clappers and eat us out of house and home and I believe him. So what did you, what was the second? like eucalyptus. I was like, no, not for me. What was your first choice? (laughs) So, well, I tell you what I chose out of the list that you gave me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You might offend here. I decided to go for the Killarney strawberry tree, the Arbutus. Oh, right. Both of us. Very diplomatic. Yeah. Both of, both of you were into it. Yeah. It's nice that it's a native tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that it's evergreen. Yeah. And I was interested that you said it has a really interesting fruit, flower and... Bark. Yeah. I thought that was cool. It didn't intimidate me by the fact that it was going to grow really fast. And... Doesn't grow that fast. No. And you said there was something kind of Mediterranean quality oh, about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that really appealed to me as well. So yeah. that's what that was my first choice. Yeah. I like the thought process because that's the most important thing and we tend to forget about a thought process when we go to garden centers. We buy something we saw on television the night before or we buy something that's in flower. 
This yeah. is much better. You walk in, you see it, and you go, oh, and if they don't have it, you go, I'll have that. But you didn't do that. I, did, <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> so obviously everyone's listening to the podcast because everyone got out to their garden centre before. And bought it. I bought yeah. it before I could. So it was gone. Well, they were, they, they were there, but they'd been bought online. So their online business uh, is huge, apparently. He was oh. saying that not many people actually call out to the nursery, walk around uh, and pick out a tree. Uh. So he's like, we have them here. And he said, this is the best one of the three of them. He's like, let me check if it's sold. He's like, it's sold. <sighs> So that is interesting. I would have gotten the better tree from calling to the nursery yeah. than ordering it online. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If, if Always the case. Yeah. yeah. Always buy it before you see. I think he felt a bit sorry for me as well. You could tell I didn't know anything and he was, you know, I you remember... You weren't looking for a bloody Arbutus Unido. He thought you were a professor from Trinity. <laughs> I, know, I think initially he did and then he asked me a follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> and you hadn't got the follow-up and I was, answer. I was out. I was like, that's me done now. Um, so then I decided for the second tree, which isn't really a tree by what you were going on from last week's podcast, is the Kojo no Mei no Mai, the, the little cherry tree. Ah, uh, no, that's yeah. such a cop-out. Why? No, it's not a cop-out. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you it grows you. this size. No, so. I know, but it wouldn't be instead. I decided I was going to get that as well. I was going to put no. it in a pot. No, when you have an established garden and you want a little I'm decoration. beaming. <laughs> that's I, what you get. I do but really no. want a cherry tree. I really love them. I've always loved them. Then it's the perfect one. It's not. Oh, no, it is. It's oh, a delightful like little that. thing. When the garden is finished, just treat yourself to a little pot plant. Yeah. Well, that, no, I'm not waiting until I'm finished the garden. because that. Could be. I like that attitude. Your <laughs> cherry tree is going to look good for three weeks a year if you're lucky. I know, lucky. I know. But yes. They, they, they really do and bring... otherwise, they look spindly and especially that little one. Well, no. that's why I said I'd get it as well as the Arbutus because you couldn't have that be your main tree. But you didn't tree. get it either. No, <laughs> they're sold out of that as well. So. <laughs> one more week. Yeah, okay. Well, what'll I do if they're sold out again next week? I gave them my name and they were going to ring me and tell me when they're going to get them in You've never struck me as a quitter. You work with us and you haven't quit yet. <laughs> yeah, and I tell you, it wasn't easy getting out there either. Where did you go? Uh, I went to a place called... <laughs> no, it was easy to get to. It's just... Uh-oh, what, what have I said? Nothing. <laughs> Are they your arch nemesis, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I googled <laughs> strawberry Killarney strawberry tree or Arbutus or Nado buy like buy this tree and this was the nearest place that would sell it okay so <laughs> where else will I go why don't we get it for 18 that's yeah. a, and that's my next thing what am I what am I working for you guys what am I, <laughs> what am I work, working with you guys for why do I have to <laughs> yeah maybe wait we on should a waiting list for a strawberry tree she's right She's right. Well, I did intend uh, getting it. Okay, well, we'll get it for you next week. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> we'll get the biggest one possible to bring into the studio. <laughs> well, they did have a very big one, but it was like a grand. So, that was me out. <laughs> what a lot of said that. But, uh, You're not surprised at it. No. <laughs> <laughs> the only nursery... In the country that Paul would have given, in these countries, in these islands that Paul would have given you that reaction to. Yes. Really, that is so funny. Yeah, but obviously, not everyone listening can do that. So, you know, what do you, like, how, how long should people wait for this kind of stuff? How long it's all it about planning. And this year is extraordinary. This year is yes, exceptional. unbelievable, exceptional. 
Nobody has ever known a year like it. So garden centres and nurseries are stressed. Between Brexit, between the pandemic, between this, that and the other, everybody's gardening. So, but it is worth planning. So I think you've just proved that. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, in the expedition. worth having a think about it. And, you know, hopefully next year you'll be able to get it in. So do oh, your planning this year. year. Guys. I need a quick win here to keep me interested. We'll do that. But, you know, not everyone wants it to be... Well, most people do want gardening to be instant. Do you hear what she said? Now, this is... I need a quick win here to keep me interested. I so can't It's that generation, be, isn't it? It's all about this instant, instant gratification, Paul. I love instant gratification. It's the best. <laughs> no, do you know what? I understand there's a lot of planning involved. But we're having an outdoor summer. Like, a lot of us aren't going to be flying abroad. So, if you're going to be in your garden, what can you plant now? Okay, we'll See, get you the flipping tree. We'll get you the tree. <laughs> but that's why we gave you a list of ten. They were all good trees. Yeah. That's the thing. You have to be, while you might have a number one tree, you know. Except for that cherry. They were all good practical trees. Cherry was... I know, I have to have a cherry tree. I've, I've always yeah, I'm, I agree. You should have a cherry tree. But just yeah. not that little party pot. It, no, it's beauty and I have one or two. Okay. Are there shrubs you can plant now that, you know... We're not going flower. on to shrubs until you have <laughs> Well, trees. if we bring a tree in, maybe then we could move on to shrubs. Would that be a natural progression? Yeah. There we go. Next time. Next time. Okay. Dirt with Derma Gavin and Paul Smith. A Go Loud original. We have questions. We have questions in as ever. First one from Jerry in Cool Rain saying, Could I please ask for some very simple advice? I have a narrow, shallow strip out the front of our house. What would you plant? It is east facing, Jerry. Plant, we always say this, so I just plants for every single site and situation. Be handy to have photographs and a little bit more information. What do you want this strip to do? The front of your house is going to be a welcome area, so it has to look quite decorative. It could be that you want to create some privacy, so you might want to build a wall with plants. But, yeah, loads of east facing. Pretty much every plant would do there. Yeah. Um, what I might do is I'd pick a few kind of simple plants. I'd go, go down a kind of classic route, east facing. Uh, I'd, you know what? I'd go a little bit nearly cliche here. I'd go hydrangea annabelle, a couple of purple alliums popping up through it. Uh, just keep it very, very simple. It'll be covered in white flower with purple balls up through it. Lovely. I'd go Cantoniaster horizontalis, Ooh. controversial 1970s style plant. That's not like you. Not like me, but... Very easy. Very easy. It'll grow anywhere. Quite good architectural shape. Evergreen. And when it flowers, it's such a pollinating plant. Mm-hmm. Filled with bees. Uh, and it's one of these kind of 1970s plants, a bit like pampas grass that's coming back in. Yeah, the other thing you could do is a cottage garden effect. So things like a couple of catmints, a couple of lupins, you know, all of those really easy uh, plants. What else is good? Uh, Any any of the... uh, Cottage garden perennial. The only thing with cottage garden perennial is they're generally herbaceous, which means they die down, so you won't have a whole lot in the wintertime. No, but you might put a few boxes in with them, clipped topiary balls or something like that. Or you could do clipped topiary balls with... Japanese forest grass. I think the point is an east-facing border, narrow strip. The narrow strip is the only kind of maybe limiting thing. Otherwise, you can put pretty much anything that takes your fancy. Get your soil right. The plants will do the rest of the work. 
And the other good tip is going to the garden centre a few different times throughout the year to get something in flower at every season rather than just get them in flower the day you go in and plant it because people do that and it looks great for one month and the rest it's bare. Hi there. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> I was planning on using an upright rosemary, Miss Jessup, as a hedge to delineate the garden and the veg beds. I was looking for something with all year round interest, not too tall. I'm struggling to source. Well, everybody's struggling to source at the moment, isn't it? Is there an alternative that you can suggest? Thanks a mil, Sinead in Galway. I have a question immediately. What, what does delineate mean? Uh, <laughs> Set out your boundaries, lines. Okay, segregate. define near. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so she wanted to use this wonderful rosemary, which is very upright, which is the definition of upright because it looks upright. It yeah. looks like single sprigs standing to attention, and it's called Miss Jessup. And that's a great Mediterranean plant for open, sunny positions. It'll take a bit of wind. It'll take a bit of battering. Uh, it'll take even seaside conditions yeah. because hard outer cuticles. And so wonderfully aromatic. But you can't get them. They're hard to get. Normal rosemary is actually quite good in its own right. You don't need the upright form to create a hedge. A bit sprawling and a bit untidy. Yeah, but you can keep it. But there's one obvious alternative here. Well, I can see one obvious alternative. I don't know about you. Lavender. Lavender. Yeah. It's, you have to, don't you? Because it's nearly better than rosemary because it is already, you know, it's mound-shaped. It's much more adaptable to being cut into a hedge. And you get flowers, like, for months. It's or, Sinead, if you're not looking for instant gratification... Why not go and find a rosemary and take cuttings? Yeah, find the variety that you like and just and take cuttings. So easy. We'll, we'll talk about or with rosemary. We'll talk about them on a future episode. So I'd nick some cuttings or some slips, as old ladies used to call them, <laughs> uh, from your mother's plant. I would plant a lavender. I'd go for something like Munstead wood. Yeah, Munstead or Hitcott are the or two Hitcott best the lavenders. Two. Yeah, uh, an alternative evergreen. Mm, Alex Cronati. Yeah, a little bit boring, I suppose. Um, you could do a Miscanthus. You could. Oh, yeah. there's a good idea. I mean, the, sorry, Miscanthus is an ornamental. Technically, grass. Any plant in a line is which grows a hedge, tall. isn't it? Uh, yeah. I know but Napita dies down in the winter. It's not evergreen. You don't get that effect. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't do it as well. Yeah, they're all good. They're all good suggestions. All the ones we've forgotten now will work. Um, and finally we've got a question hi guys I've been following the last number of weeks and been really enjoying the sessions and learning loads so thank you thank you there you go I'm hoping to make my own nettle fertiliser and would like to know your thoughts on it from Sean in Clapham Hi, Sean in Clapham great idea so nettle soup is the most nutritious soup for your garden plants. Bubble, very bubble easy. toil and trouble. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is, it gets... Oh. You have to have a bit of a witch about and a you. And a stomach. druid uh, yeah. uh, about you. So you get uh, nettles, chop up the leaves, you put them in a bucket of water, but a bucket that has a lid on it. You try and use rainwater to do this. You So once they're chopped up, put them in the bucket of water, leave them for a week, go take the lid off. The stink will be unbelievable stir it up a little bit they actually do bubble in front of your eyes leave it another week and then strain out open the bucket be aware that the smell you're going to get is the worst smell bar none of anything that you've ever smelled 
It's unbelievable how bad it is. Don't do it inside. Words don't describe. Oh, he did it. In, Dermot did it inside last summer. One summer evening last year, he thought, this is a great idea. At 10 o'clock, let's decant my There was soup. somebody sleeping upstairs. They even had to get out of bed and leave the house. Three stories up I was. <laughs> I thought someone was dead in the kitchen and left for two weeks. It was that kind of smell. <laughs> it is that bad. But outside, holding your nose with a uh, closed peg, uh, strain away the gucky stuff. And then you have fertiliser, really wonderful fertiliser. Dilute that fertiliser, uh, one part nettle soup to one part water, and water in. And even a little bit weaker than that, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, You don't want to do too strong. It's always better to err on the side of caution. Am I way out one-to-one? Well, it's one to ten. Yeah, one to ten, maybe. Oh, is it? It's always better to be careful, because you don't know how strong it is. It's a bit like making pudding, isn't it? You don't really know the... It's not proof of it. Take it from me. It's not like making pudding. <laughs> Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. Paul, you were for a time defined by this amazing trip you had—a plant hunting exit expedition that you did with some other lads from Ireland. What is a plant hunting expedition? Um. Well, I suppose. Asking that in 2021, very different to asking that 200 years ago. But in effect, you go to a different country, you take plants from that country or seed, plant material, depending on what you're allowed to take, and you bring it back to this country because you want to grow plants that will look amazing, that will do fantastic things. Because as we've said before, the huge percentage of the garden plants that we grow in our gardens don't come from these islands. They come from all over the world. And historically, people have done that for years and years, and people are continuing to do that up to this day. Uh, originally, they went, obviously, with more of a motivation to show off, to, you know, become the one who gets the new plan, to finds whatever. Now, the emphasis is very much more on conservation, and people tend to go with that in mind. So, hundreds of years ago, there were passionate <coughs> people who were either plant hunters or sponsored plant hunting expeditions to far-flung places, and... Uh, some of the times these were for food crops and whatever and with the idea of making vast sums or just bringing back something for the Lord and Master to show in their garden or in their greenhouse and now it's very different yeah yeah it's totally different now and you go over with generally like a hit list so you're trying to find certain things that you know how do you know where to go and what sort of plants how does it plant how did it come about well, it came about because I used to work in a nursery over in North Wales called Krieg Farm Plants. Krug, which, farm. Krug uh, if you want to spell it the way it sounds. Um, but it's a nursery in North Wales and for which years... Is world renowned. Um, a very small nursery and, you know, on the edge of Snowdonia, hidden away, tucked away over in the UK. And they have been doing for 25 years just that. They've been going out to the wilds of all over the world, to Taiwan, to jungles in Japan, to South America, collecting plants and bringing them back. And we've not got enough plants? Well, the thing is, we have enough plants, but there's so many more plants out there. And there's so many plants out there that are being lost every single day to lots uh. of different things. And the only way a lot of those plants can be preserved and even recorded is by bringing them back. And well, there have been lots of different things they've been lost to. Uh, 
humans, humans, we're our own worst enemies. You know, we're still deforesting land. Over in Vietnam, where I went, the main thing was cardamom farming. So black cardamom pods, which is a very commonly used spice, are grown there. And they clear upland woodland areas where nothing else will grow because it's very mountainous, really rough terrain. They clear all of the kind of, you know, understory woodland stuff. They leave a couple of big trees for shelter and they plant this cardamom, which is a very close relative to ginger. And basically they make sure everything else dies and they keep chopping all the native plants around it and only have one crop. So you go into it and it's actually quite incredible. I'll post some pictures on my Instagram of it. But all you have is one crop of really lush tropical cardamom leaves, but nothing else. It turns it into like a field of wheat in a most amazing jungle. And are there people who are interested in those countries trying to preserve areas? Well, the problem is in these countries, they tend to be developing countries and they are basically trying to make livings. The people up in those areas, you're far, far away from, you know, civilization, from what we would consider civilization. There's, you know, small farmers, they're living on, you know, not huge amounts of land, and they need to make a living. They are very, very poor. We had some very humble meals in some of their houses when we were trekking. But, you know, they need to make a living, and the way they have found to make a living is by planting this black cardamom, which commands a price because people will buy it in the West. You know, we buy it, we're the consumers. And they know that if they can grow it up there, it's one of the few things that will grow. They can make a bit of an income from the place. So you're a passionate gardener, you're a passionate plants person. You love different types of, uh, all sorts of different types of plants. And you gather together with a few like-minded people to go with the idea of a personal journey, a personal odyssey, but also discovery and also bringing back something. Yeah, yeah. So the whole thing was we wanted to bring back plants. We brought back a few incredible things. Probably the most dramatic was... Wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, wish to well. Sorry. How did you pick there? What did you know about there? How did you pick there? How do you set up a plant hunting trip like that? So it was with Blarney Castle. I went uh, in conjunction you with went them. went with a castle? Well, I didn't bring the castle. I brought the gardeners from the castle and myself. So Blarney is down in Cork and it's amazing. it has the Blarney Stone, blah, blah, blah. A big visitor attraction and it has a beautiful garden and huge investment is going on into that garden. And they're now investing in conservation. So they sent out myself. They sent out wow. their head. Well, they didn't send me out. I was with them. I tagged along because I worked in Krieg and I kind of had an idea of the plants. So I had, you know, would have been more aware of it. There was Adam, there was Rory, and there was Bruno. The four of us went. We all had kind of different reasons, different sort of interests, but together we were a good team. We went up into the mountains. We chose Vietnam because, number one, uh, where I worked, there when was, was lots this? of Vietnamese plants. 2016 and 2017, we went two years in a row, one after the other. You go in the autumn because we were mainly collecting seed, which is what our permits allowed. You're not allowed to take black plant material without lots of different uh, certificates. But permits we did have issued the, by... Uh, different people, the authorities on both this side and in Vietnam. We worked with an initiative called the Hongling Conservation Initiative, which is another organization that's linked to the university in Hanoi. And they have this um, basically agreement in place that people from the West can come collect plant material, provided that you will give them access to the plant material if they ever want it. And you're doing it on a non-commercial basis. So you're not going over there to find the plant to then sell it to everyone. The plants were being taken away but they were taken away with the premise that they are being conserved in what they call ex situ conservation which in effect is like a zoo. A zoo is an ex situ conservation. Dublin Zoo is just bringing all those animals and putting them into one place and that's what we did basically but just with plants. 
not as cute as a elephant or a rhino, but you know, same well, idea. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on your point of view. So you, how, is it expensive to buy a ticket for this sort of thing? Well, you don't buy a ticket for this type of thing. You don't you go did. on to, you know, planthunttrip.com and go, <laughs> give me two weeks in the jungles without any technology. Oh, the brilliant thing was, we went in October 2016, uh, the week that Trump was voted in. So we, for four days, were blissfully unaware that the world was crumbling around us. <laughs> and when we got back to reality, it kind of felt like, you know, having been away for five days without phone technology, without a toilet, without anything, we came back and we kind of felt like, is this a parallel universe where Donald Trump is now the president? Uh, but anyway, that was, you know, that's the type, you know, you're away from everything. You're away from roads, infrastructure, people. The only people you have are the local guides who, in that case... And are, who organised the whole thing? So we work with a guy over there, uh, Uk, and Uk is a local in the village that we based ourselves from. The village was Sapa, very close to Mount Fanzipan, which is the tallest mountain in the kind of Indochina area. And the reason we went to a mountainous area was the higher you go in a country, the colder it is, and the more like the climate uh, in the country that you're going to, or uh, the country you want to grow them so in. So the plants that are growing there will more than likely survive here. Because they would have you have permits climates. to take seed or plant cuttings or whatever plant material like that back. Yeah. Uh, and you grow them and they should. You then have the excitement of picking them when the seed is set, drying them, bringing them back and... The following season seeing them grow yeah and Rory was the one who was doing all of the growing when they got back and seeing the photos as things germinated was just exhilarating and seeing all those new plants that we had you know trekked for days to try and find so, uh, well, that's, uh, how long did it take you to get there where did you end up where was the epicentre of your well adventure? we walked into China by accident so as I said we were based in Sapa which is a well known tourist kind of village now but we went far beyond Sapa we went in a little bus up onto road we kind of went until the road stopped basically and then we went until the was no road at all and we were on single file tracks and we went we didn't collect any lower than 1800 meters which is i think karen Hill is just shy of a thousand meters so we oh, were okay. nearly doubled the height of karen Hill before we began to even collect seed and in those countries you'd need to be because otherwise it the, wasn't cold enough wouldn't be yeah, yeah 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 you need to go up there to get the height and the cold oh, and okay. that's and, what we were at. and when you go up there is it going up through jungle is it What's what's the terrain like? Yeah, yeah, the roads stop and then you're basically in jungle. You're walking up. There's tracks because of all the cardamom farmers. They particularly go down lower. After a certain height, even they can't grow. But they're in the lower areas, so they have lots of tracks up through and you meet them. The Hmong tribe are the local people in that area. They're kind of a Chinese tribe that have been pushed. Uh, well, they're probably a Vietnamese tribe that have been pushed out of Vietnam close to that border region. So we were very much on the kind of China-Vietnamese border. I think one day, technically, if you looked at our GPS, we might have walked into uh, China by accident without ever getting it stamped on the passport. But uh, that's another story. Uh, and that's what we did. We went up into these areas. Uh, the tribe were there. They were brilliant because they were the local people, the local knowledge. We had all of our fancy waterproof gear on with all our technology. They had a pair of rubber wellies and a black sack over them and they walked through the rain and everything and they didn't care. They just went up, they lit a fire and they had everything going. And when we felt miserable, they had a fire lit and they had started to make rice rolls or uh, not rice rolls, what are they called? Spring rolls, which was a favourite thing that we had when we were eating there. Uh, and they used to bring live chickens with them because you couldn't store, you know, meat for a few days. So they used to bring a couple of live chickens and we used to have them fresh <laughs> as you were clamping. It was incredible. And they cooked for you every night and it was just... 
So uh, how many days out of their camp would you be? Would you walk for three days? Yeah, we did three or four day kind of oh. camping uh, hikes. So by the fourth day, you sort of appreciate things like a shower and all of that. Because you're is going this all the time, kind of Indiana Jones style with true jungle. Yeah, and... you're pushing your way through, and there's creepy crawlies, and there's things that want to bite you and eat you, and all of that. You know, so you're always sort of hyper aware of when there's a, a hairy caterpillar on you, twice the size of your arm. You know, you need to do something, sort of a thing. Uh, that happens. All the time, and you're in this really humid environment. So the other thing people don't realize, because you're up so high, you're basically in the clouds. We were walking through cloud forests all of the time. So for days on end, we didn't see much more than maybe 30, 40 meters ahead of us. And there was the most incredible mist. And in all of this, I have beautiful pictures of all of the you know moss-covered trees because it's kind of ancient forest that hasn't been touched. Some of it, it's just an incredible thing. But you're always damp. We were never dry, always damp, always in the kind of, you know, not very nice environment to trek through, but that you didn't care because what you were seeing, what you were experiencing, you were going up to a place where, you know, probably only handfuls of Western people had ever been. So that was an exhilarating thing. All of the local people would look at you because you were this white person in this area where, what are they doing here? You know, they just couldn't understand it, number one, but they didn't care as long as we were, you know, tipping them to stay in their house for the afternoon or whatever. That was their thing. It was just the most incredible experience. And the fact that we were collecting plants made it all the more exhilarating. So you had a destination in mind. We did. We had a hit list, you could say, of plants. So we had certain things we knew we wanted. We had certain areas we knew we could find them. One of the really cool things was this plant, you know, chestnut, horse chestnuts. Uh, We grow them here. They've been around for hundreds of years growing in this country. But we found one. uh, The normal one that you grow in their garden, horse chestnut, is Aeschylus hippocastanum. There's one called Aeschylus wangii. This is just botanical names. And the conquer on that is the size of a tennis ball. It's absolutely incredible. If one of them fell on your head, it'd knock you clean out. And imagine playing a game of conquers with a, a con- or tennis or conquer the size of a tennis ball. It would win hands down. And um, if you knew the name of this plant, it must be growing elsewhere. Why not just go there and collect seed from your local garden centre? A lot of them don't produce seed in the countries where they're grown outside oh. of. Um, it's very difficult to propagate a lot of these plants. So some of them, yeah, there were plants that we knew that were there and we could get elsewhere. But it's very hard to get the seed and get true seed from them. And the other thing was, the I guess the dream and the goal would be to find something that nobody else has quite discovered yet or found something that nobody else has. No, we didn't. Or at least we don't think we did. But, you know, there's always that possibility that you find something that, you know, you could say, oh, I found that on my trip. And that was the whole thing, that there are still hundreds of thousands of plants and this is the point to make to everyone listening thinking you know what's he rambling about going up trekking in vietnam and doing mad things they're mad enough why do they need to hear about this but out there in this world there are hundreds of thousands of plants yet to be discovered a lot of them common plants like one of them that we found was a busy lizzie in impatiens which is the fancy name for busy lizzie we found one called impatiens sapaensis which came from the area that we were in sapa so it's just a busy lizzie from that area very different to the bedding ones you see in you know your Aunt Bessie's window box over in Dublin but still cool and we got begonias again nothing like the begonias you find in your um, hanging baskets and but uh, what's the cool. process does somebody spot it do you have drawings in do you have photographs of them does you're using Rory say, your eyes you're using your eyes so somebody shouts yeah Somebody shouts, somebody trips over. I was always Paddy last because I had the camera and I was more interested in taking pictures as, as much as the plants. But I did spot one tree as a result of being Paddy last and I was the one who fell down kind of and rolled the hills. And That's the other thing, you have to be quite careful. You know, it's pretty treacherous. You're up high in one wrong move and you're 
you know, I did roll down a hill at one point and they thought that was it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the process is you use your eyes, you're always hyper aware, you're looking for things. And Uck, who is the kind of guide who leads other people who are interested in this. So Uck leads lots of people botanical wise from all over the world that would be interested in doing this. So he would know where certain things are and he would go, Paul, 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 look at this, look at this. And he would have, and then he'd shout and he'd get one of his guys to run up with one of their machetes oh, to okay. uh, sure, often Paul. vandalize a plant to take a bit of seed off it and you're like no we're here to try save the plants don't chop the whole seed head off of them <laughs> and <laughs> what was the what did the busy lizzie look like it didn't look anything like you'd want it to it was yellow with red speckles on it it was quite vile in some ways but also beautiful in its own right so where's the value uh, the value is in what if that plant is the plant that has the cure for pancreatic cancer? What if that plant is the one that, you know, it can be used for so many different things? We haven't yet in this world discovered all of the plants. There's hundreds of thousands of plants out there. They all have a value to both humans and the kind of ecosystems that they're in. And the more we know about them, the more we're aware of them, the more that we understand why they're there, the more we can learn about the world. So it's just a journey of discovery and, you know, hopefully finding something that sometimes are just purely ornamental. The like Chef Lyra. The Chef Lyra. Yeah. So one of my favourite um, genus for Everything. <laughs> for everything, yeah. We we grow Scheffler's inside, and I know your former employees at Krieg Farm um, <laughs> found this one, Taiwania, which I debuted at the Chelsea Flower Show in a garden in 2004, but you were looking for a different one. Yeah, they're the umbrella plant, or the umbrella tree, they're commonly known as. We were looking for one called Macrophylla, and you can imagine macro meaning big, phylla is the kind of latin posh word for leaf so it was the big leaf umbrella plant and when i say big leaf you know a six foot span on the leaf was not unusual it was just monstrous and we saw mature specimens of these that were so big you couldn't even see the tops of them uh it was just remarkable we actually there was some lower growth that we saw and we spotted it and we got seed from it and they're growing got one in carlo i've tried them in carlo it's a bit cold for them they're from a little lower down so you have to be careful with how you grow them but they're very cool and I know uh, Dara grows one our friend who has he's in Ratfarnham he's in Ratfarnham and he has the most incredible one that he as you say juices he gives lots of feed to and he sort of cheats but he senses it to fast food restaurants yeah yeah and gives it a, a bit of Red Bull yeah and away yeah. it goes <laughs> and the one you have did the leaf span get to a meter? No, no. So that's the other thing. Uh, it depends how you grow them and where you grow them. So uh, Dara has a lovely, nice, warm, neat courtyard in Ratfarnham. I grow mine on the side of a hill in Carlo, and the conditions do mean a lot to how these plants grow. Mine doesn't look quite as impressive, but some of the plants that we've grown grow happily where I am. Funny enough, we found one, you know, Red Robin, uh, which everybody, Fatinia, that lots of people listening will probably be aware of. Uh, we found a red robin that had a tiny, tiny leaf and Rory and I think it could be a good replacement for box because box is becoming a difficult thing to, you know, uh, grow in people's gardens. And it's a really neat leaf thing and going to see how we can keep that clipped. Nice little thing and kind of got a red tinge to it, but not as bad as red robin. Not as bad. (laughs) Box, buscus in general, Sempervirens has been grown in gardens around the world. Um, People make parterres from them. They're associated with Renaissance 
Renaissance gardening for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, yeah. 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 Uh, and it's been suffering from blight and from caterpillars and from this and that. And everybody's looking for the holy grail, the new plant. And they've tried things like Ilex granata and Euonymus and different things. And don't really work. But you think you have the answer? Well, we don't have the answer, but it's another alternative, isn't it? You can never, you know, how to make another Dermot Gavin you can't you can only have one uh, thankfully oh, God, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and does this contemporary plant hunting go on all the time or do you feel that you were part of something unusual and rare and a lifetime once in a lifetime experience or twice in a lifetime I guess in certain cliques it goes on and in botanical gardens it goes on a little bit but not to the extent that it used to go on and as things become more and more difficult, as not difficult, there's procedures in place. There's now legislation in place. Uh, the one being the Nagoya Protocol, which protects every single country has the right to the material that they have, and it's not been taken from them. And that's a real protective piece of legislation that's worldwide, that is really good. So yeah, it's a very unusual thing, and it's happening, but not happening a whole lot. But I'd love to. I'd love to get back again if I could. And in the meantime, all the rest of us can go on our own plant hunting expeditions by just walking out into the garden and seeing what's out there because all of these plants, have, uh, the vast majority, have been discovered by somebody and there's always a story behind them. Dirt, a Go Loud original. I really enjoyed your adventures this week. And don't forget, if you want to check out any of Paul's images from that incredible trip or those trips indeed to Vietnam check out our Instagrams we really want you to get involved in Dirt with Dermot and Paul there's no such thing as a silly question Uh, well we can be the judges of that but please please send your questions we love hearing from you and we love answering garden questions and we have another adventure next week we're not hearing about Paul's travels we're going on our travels we're going down to Balanskelligs in County Kerry to hear about a garden odyssey, the creation of a remarkable garden in one of the wildest coastal areas of the country. Can't wait. See you then.